Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Queer in Love, the podcast where we explore queer relationships through a queer lens. I'm Diego Amado, and in each episode I talk to queers about love, pop culture, kink, politics, and beyond. This episode is a bit different from my usual fare in that it touches on a very personal and very difficult reality. By way of a content warning, be advised that the subject of incest is discussed. My conversation with Molly is about many other things, but in order to respect her experience and those of any potential listeners, I wanted to add this disclaimer prior. There's much more to Molly's story, but her resilience and strength are certainly part of it. Hello, Molly. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. How are you doing today? You know, I'm actually doing really well. It's been a rough time lately, and I'm feeling more like myself and better than I have been in recent days. And so it's just like when you come up for air for the first time after feeling like you've been struggling for it, that breath is that much more powerful and life-giving. Dare I ask, is it the panoramic? (laughs) Panoramic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that doesn't help I think that definitely amplifies the things that are rough the big things that have been rough are that I'm moving and doing an intense consulting job at the same time and Mm. um, I have moved three times in the last eight months all because of the pandemic and everything that's hard about moving is so much harder because people can't just come into your space and help you out like I've always relied on community to help me move and I don't own a lot yeah. of stuff. So that's felt like not a, not too much to ask. And then just the emotional support of needing someone to just keep you company while you're packing your shit or whatever, you know? Yeah. Scamming your friends to help you move and then buying them a pizza. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, we're, I mean, we're deep, deep into the Pendarvis and mm-hmm. I'm wondering, have you dated at all during the Pen15 Yeah, that's a great question. That has been particularly poignant and painful in the Pen15 pandemonium. (laughs) Say more. Peter Piper penis. Yeah. Um, So, um, yeah. So I mentioned to you in my oversharing email that last year I had... I had my first ever romantic Valentine's Day date last year. Essentially, I was dating someone who I had only been seeing for a few months. And when I say only been seeing for a few months, I'm making myself out to sound like I've had much longer relationships than a few months, but I have not. So I was seeing someone for what was me a regular amount of time. Um, But the difference is, is that I have been really ready in these last few years of my life to find a romantic life partner of sorts. Mm. Um, So we started dating. We both were looking for what we called, what she originally called casual magic. And I was like, Ooh, that sounds fun. And I was dating a couple of other people just like super casually. And then with this person, it was clear that there was magic, but she was in a very committed partnership with someone she had been with at that point for almost 10 years. And then as it was clear that like we had some really strong feelings for each other and what she had agreed on with her primary partner was feeling hard for her and for me, I was like, okay, well, you know, neither one of us expected this, but you just deal with what you, what's actually happening. And the ways that we negotiated that seemed satisfactory to me at the time, even though it wasn't easy. And I was like, yeah, relationships aren't easy. Okay. Got it. And then at one point we had this really fucking like dreamy, sweet, almost rom-com moment naked in my bed one day. And she was like, 
hey, how do you feel about Valentine's Day? Are you like cynical about it or whatever? And I was like, oh, I was like, you know, I'm not cynical about it. I mean, I'm plenty cynical of the patriarchy, but that's not news to her, you know, and she agreed. And it's just been this sort of non-issue. And she was like, well, I'm really into it and I really want us to celebrate. And I was like, that sounds, that sounds great. And I said, but just so you know, um, this would be my first like romantic Valentine's day date. So no pressure. And she's like, oh, I'm not worried. I'm really good at it. And I was like, oh, all right then. Hey. And, and so then as things progressed and our dates just got hotter and more intense and more connected and more starry eyed. And then the actual Valentine's day rolled around. Um, she didn't reach out. She didn't text or call or like acknowledge it at all. And I was so hurt. And I questioned if my if my pain was valid because I didn't I was so concerned about not seeming uncollaborative or whatever or seeming selfish or greedy or something. And the good news was is that I was hosting our mutual friend's birthday party that night. And so I had all of these other lovely friends there and I could just like process with them. Queer family. I was like, do you yeah, thank God. They really caught me. And and I was just like, do you think I'm overreacting? And they were like, no, this is pretty shitty, you know? And I was like, yeah. It, it is. Yeah, it's pretty shitty. And so at that point, it had, it was like the writing's on the wall. Like there, we don't have a future, even if we really want one, because these really basic things are feeling super painful. And I'm like Wait, begging so- for scraps. So what 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 happened? Like, did she explain or? So I meet her for our date, and a couple days later, and I and I and already I was feeling kind of annoyed on a on a secondary level. I was feeling dissatisfied because I felt like I couldn't even trust her at this point to let her know that I was upset. Because at that point, I didn't trust that she wouldn't get scared or aloof or withdrawn or whatever. And so yeah. I felt really passive aggressive that I didn't mention that I was upset. I was just kind of like, okay, I'll see you at our date. And I knew it was basically going to be our our last one. And then we get together and she had no idea that anything was wrong. And that was also hard for me. She was like, oh, you're making a face. What's going on? And I was like, yeah, I just had the worst Valentine's Day ever. Because <laughs> it was going to be your first one. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, now I'm bitter about it. Now I'm <laughs> cynical about it. Thanks. Uh and, and, you know, I just said, I just said to her, like, all I wanted was just even a text, you know, just something I was expecting it. I, and I wouldn't have been expecting it had I not felt like I was built up for that expectation. And to her credit, she was like, oof, yeah, that was pretty, that was, I can see that was pretty like selfish or whatever she said. And, and I said, you know, what's even harder about all of this for me is that you didn't think of me at all. Yeah. You didn't even think of me and she was like what I thought of you the whole day the whole day I couldn't get you out of my head and I was spending all this time on this valentine I made for you and I got excited about it and I was just like what What? and um so we had just this very sad pretty stereotypically I think femi queer teary breakup but at the same time not very stereotypically queer I realized that I was dating someone who I really trusted to be this like ethical non-monogamous queer person and this metamor who I hadn't met but trusted as someone who I have heard of in my community as being great we of course have mutual people what what does metamor mean great question so 
It's what you call the person who's with the person you're dating. So I would be this, I would be her partner's metamor and they would be my metamor. Okay. Because the amor is the person in common, I guess. Yes. And I don't, I'm not like some active poly person or whatever. I mean, I just was like, I'm here to date and fuck and see what happens and do that with like intention and safety and consent and direct communication. You're a passive Um, And I know. (laughs) I mean, but see, I'm not like opposed to monogamy. My, my approach to relationships Mm. is okay. We have so much evidence showing how monogamy doesn't work. We have so much evidence showing how poly doesn't work. To me, it's you choose the one that doesn't work the worst for you. Relationships are fucking hard. And as we were just like waxing philosophical about at the start of this conversation, the, the same strictures that make up our romantic relationships, even when we're queer, are still rooted in centuries of colonial hetero normativity, you know, that tell us who belongs, who passes, who counts. And this isn't just about how you understand your identity in a way that gives you some sort of immaterial, emotive, spiritual connection. It's the ways in which you can like accumulate wealth. So what what is your, so you're not opposed to monogamy. You're not opposed to polyamory. Mm -hmm. Do you have in any general terms, a vision of what your ideal queer relationship would be like? Yeah. Um, and I, and it's no matter what it's, it's, um, flexible to adapting to what's best needed for the, for the individual and the pairing or more whoever's involved. Mm -hmm. Um, so long as it's honest, so long as it's compassionate self and others, and so long as it's like stable, but adaptable. And that's, those are hard, especially in combination. And that's what I want. I do not expect one person to fulfill all of my needs. That's a heteronormative lie. I do not expect a polycule to do that either. And it's been very mm-hmm. clear to me as a, as a chatty loudmouth that the more people you are communicating with, the harder and more complicated things become. And it's very heteronormative to assume that non-monogamy is somehow makes life easier or you get a two-for-one deal because it's been very clear to me that the more people you add on, the more work that's involved. And I think um, in my, in living where I live, there the queer community, like every fucking city, but I'm in Seattle, which is not a large city compared to Chicago, for example, you know, all the queers know each other or yeah. very closely connected. And my big mistake that I, I'm learning from is that I just assumed their ethics were aligned in a basic enough way that I didn't even need to ask about. I assumed based on how my ex, how she presented herself, her conversations. I assumed based on the reputation of her partner, who I didn't know but had heard was great, that like they got that consent and direct and open communication are critical. And now there's terms like kitchen table polyamory, which I literally just heard about a week and a half ago. Have you heard this Say term? More. No, I don't know what that is. Well, apparently it means you people who are kitchen table polyamorous are only going to be involved in romantic situations where everybody feels comfortable sitting at the table talking to one another. And to me... Oh. That doesn't need to be specified. If you can't find a way to have consensual talk, doesn't even mean you have to have a big relationship with that, quote, metamor or whatever. But if there's not open communication, that's not ethical non-monogamy. That's an affair, you know? And and you know what? It's funny because, yeah, there's this assumption that 
you know, the secret to mm-hmm. a long-lasting relationship is communication. But that's really hard. <laughs> and you're not mm-hmm. taught how to communicate with your romantic partner by anyone. You just, you go out and fall in love. Well, and heteronormativity tells you that you don't talk to your partner in this deep communicative way, after, right. especially over time. And so I was dating someone who is a cis woman and she was dating a person who uses they them pronouns used to identify as a cis man and presents still in a way that is read as a cis man a Mm -hmm. cis white man and as far as beyond changing their pronouns i don't know anything else about this person's gender identity but they have major straight passing privilege and they used to identify as a straight couple and they've been together since they were in their early 20s and as much as i was like "Eh, you know whatever I was, I have this very like, anybody and everybody's queer, you know, and I'm not the fucking gender police, right? And I don't, that doesn't mean you can't do queerness in a way that's ethical or whatever. Didn't, didn't think much of it. But then as we are talking in our breakup, I'm asking her essentially why she is struggling and grieving our relationship before it's even over. And I'm understanding from her that she is so sad to essentially lose me and before the breakup even began and i said why why are why why is what are you growing what are you learning by essentially throwing this away and she was like i don't know cuz i'm stupid and i was like okay well then how do you work this out with your partner like what are your agreements when something when um when you want things to change or whatever And she was just staring at me blankly. And then she let me know that her partner had at that point turned to her in the last several weeks or months that we had been dating and was like, you never talk about Molly. And that just when I heard her say those words from her partner, I was like, I'm a secret. Like they know that I exist, but that's it. They have no idea how much you feel about me and how much you say it's hard to be away from me. And how you call me dreamy and how you feel so lucky that we're together and how we have this intense connection and all this stuff, right? And I was devastated and I've been very angry that I essentially got used by a couple who really wants to identify as queer and claims queerness and I think is classic not only heteronormative toxic practices, but very much an anti-femme, almost lesbian stereotype. This is every Jeanette Winterson novel. This is every (laughs) lesbo writing about an affair with the straight woman. She, the straight woman, loves the lesbo, but is ultimately going to go back to the, the sort of dry, safe, even if it's loving and wonderful, the relationship with the, who is all intents and purposes presenting as a man. Um, and the heteronormative passing of that dynamic. And then I felt really guilty that I was like the gender police by denying she and her partner's queerness and her partner's gender queerness. And I'm like, yeah, but they, the historical context nevertheless is there. And people do talk about queer relationships falling very much into heteronormative patterns, right? Where, as we were saying, exactly. the femme always takes on the, that femme role and all the kinds of trappings that go along with it, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that that does tend to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 Would you? Do you think you'll be able to be friends with her eventually? I don't. I that's a great question. I don't know. When we were breaking up, I was just like, I think you're so amazing, and even in you know, even though we're not going to be together, I still want you in my life in some way, which yeah. was really huge for me because I had never been at that 
stage with anybody. And that's also part of like talking to you today is like a lot of shame. Why never? Why? Why shame? Because I'm an incest survivor. And I survived oh, wow. incest for years. That was my first introduction to sex for years. And I what grew up with a single mom. And we were low income for U.S. standards. And we had Section 8 and we got Christmas presents and we had all kinds of other luxuries. But we were very pay, paycheck to paycheck and you were always thinking about money and how tight money was. And I knew I was very lucky that I had a brain and I knew that education was my ticket out. And I just thought it's hard enough being poor. It's hard enough being a woman. Like I'm going to make sure that I am safe and protected and untouchable. And that really cemented my, my closetedness for years and it made it also so I could control romantic sexual encounters to where I, I couldn't be vulnerable, you know, because vulnerability in sex was a big trigger. And so my earliest consensual sexual experiences were essentially with straight dudes and that was pretty unfulfilling. And, but I got to be on top, you know, pun intended. Um, and then I read Gloria Saldua. I think it was in the entrevistas when she mm -hmm. talks about how she had this condition where she was 18 months old and already menstruating. And then when I was reading that and she was, I mean, and of course, Gloria Anzaldúa like came from a, you know, a migrant family living in shanties in central California and Arizona and Mexico. And when she talked about her body in that way, she was like, I got a period when I was 18 months old. I was born queer. Yeah, her journey through queerness is a very powerful one, for sure. And it, and it's so embodied and it's so immediate. And even though I'm I am have do not have any of those experiences, it really relate it really resonated with me and as an incest survivor and as a rape survivor, it was like I was born queer and I can let go of this myth that I can somehow compensate or make up for all the ways that I missed out on what regular life was supposed to be and supposed to offer. And I can just let that fucking go because I was yeah. never going to be that. Not ever. Yeah. No, and I don't have to keep trying to do something that's impossible. And that was very powerful. My mom was also a fierce badass in many ways. And she told me early on, for from as long as I can remember, she was just like, do not have this life get an education, get a job that you like, have your own money, don't rely on a man for anything, go see the world, go follow your dreams, get the fuck out of here, you know? And I really, really took it to heart and I started to learn early on in, in, in my youth and childhood and adolescence that I really wanted to have the love of my dreams when I could really love myself in yeah. a way that felt real and sustainable. And so all through my adolescence and 20s and all of that, I was like, well, it's not time yet because I know how shaky I am. And I know we're only supported in enabling relationships where we get involved because we don't know ourselves. We don't love ourselves and we're not comfortable with ourselves. And I saw how fucking dangerous that was and how dangerous that is for women. And I was like, not me, never, no. We try to process trauma in so many different ways because we also didn't have the tools to process it even when we're given them through 
therapy or whatever, it's still, it's still, it doesn't, it doesn't take it right away. You know, it takes a long time, especially something that, that messes with your intimate sense of self and, and your, your mm-hmm. way of relating to others on a very basic level. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't have an innocent childhood and I was not very well protected, which sucks. But the upside was, is that my mom made me wise. And I was very privileged to the fact that her childhood was worse than mine. Her mother's childhood was even worse than that. And her mother's mother worse since fucking Eve. And I was just full of rage and mystified that it was that prevalent and that just everyone, it was just so built in and somehow it was okay and excused and enabled. And I, as a child, was like this fucking stops with me and I fucking meant it but the problem is is that I'm just one angry like queer and I haven't managed to protect all of us which is again so paternalistic now I can see that right but it is part of my life's work to help to help heal my own sexual trauma and enable that healing in others in in whatever microcosms make sense you know from this conversation to anything else it's yeah, not bad I have, to have. I have, you know, big purple cunt energy or whatever. <laughs> Can <laughs> you, you know. what, 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 how would you describe purple cunt energy? Okay, I guess I don't really want to claim the purple cunt energy. I don't want a purple cunt. Um, so I don't want a purple cunt and I, and I, I don't want a purple cunt unless I'm feeling petty. But um, yeah, it's a basically like a Peach's father fucker is like a twist on the blue balls. Mm-hmm. Um, of like, oh, you thought you were going to get laid or you really want to and it didn't happen and you got the purple cunt, you know. Is that on a Peaches song? No, she just says father fucker in, um, you know, one of her early albums that I'm blanking yeah, on the yeah, name fa- of right yeah. now. Father fucker, yeah. Well, father fucker, that's the yeah, album, yeah. duh. I, I like the energy of the, the angry queer definitely more than the purple cunt. Yeah. Have you found that you gravitate to other angry queers? I Romantically, think all I mean. Of- Oh, um, no. I mean, not angry in terms of like they're prickly or difficult to get to know or whatever. Like angry in that they know the world is fucked up and right, like they're right. all they're all like leftists, you know, and they all like they don't romanticize even the cool politicians. Like that's pretty required for me. <laughs> I really don't I really don't think that like the the systems that are destroying us are going to save us. That is so, you know, that's so based on the, the the heteronormative kinship model, you know, the dad provides for you, therefore he goes unquestioned and the dad, your daddy is your government, you know. Um, so you're not into hashtag girl boss? No, I don't like the term girl or lady or like, hey, ladies or like lady boss or any of that crap. I mean, if that's if that's what you want for you, more power to you. But I, I'm not not a woman, but I'm more than a woman, you know, like, like. Aaliyah sings. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, That exactly popped into my head. Thank you. But I guess I meant more, you know, people who really love the idea of like a female politician. No, I don't give a shit. Politicians are evil. (laughs) Like these systems are not going to save us. Like AOC is cool, right? But I think what makes her cool is that she knows she's not a savior. How are we still using the logics of exceptionalism to try and create more equity for the masses? Because yeah, exceptionalism is not for is not the standard. And, yeah. and it really makes it so that people expect people like AOC to just be this someone who she cannot be in that position that she's in. 
because right. it's still reproducing the same ideologies, right? right? Which is exactly the problem. Yeah, because she has to work. She has to work within a bureaucracy that is designed to do certain things and not others. Mm-hmm. Because the way the government works is not designed to achieve those same things that people want her to achieve. Um, right. Although I do enjoy seeing Katie Porter take down rich people. You yeah. know, her she she pulls out her whiteboard and she's like, "This yep. is basic." No, math. that's and that's you are, fabulous. You know, the equation yep. equals you are garbage. You know, and it's yeah, I, and I'm glad satisfying. that they're there. Right. Exactly. It's not a like, oh, my God, like it's not a perfect, pure utopia. I'm not interested because, again, this is implying that you're outside or above it. And that's my issue. This idea of superiority or some outside that's not actually possible. I'm not interested in purity politics. And I'm and I really think that the romanticization of politicians is putting them on this pedestal, which starts to get creeps toward the same issues of purity, just like the hardcore leftists who are never satisfied with people's foolishness and late capitalism. I hope you appreciated Molly's vulnerable candor and all her powerful insights today. Join us next week for part two of my conversation with her. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And if you've got a moment, please rate and review us. Our show is produced by Diego Amato and myself, producer Steven. Music by Noah Crickshank. Get in touch with us. Email us at diego at queerinlove.com. <laughs>